Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 12, The Tri-Wizard Tournament. Through the gates flanked with statues of winged boars, and up the sweeping drive the carriages trundled, swaying dangerously in what was fast becoming a gale. Leaning against the window, Harry could see Hogwarts coming nearer. I'm Caspar Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Caspar, Happy New Year! Happy New Year to you too! Thank you! 2018. 2018. Can't be worse than 2017. Can. It can. That's what's scary. 2018, hopefully not as bad as 2017. We, like, interpersonally had a good year. It's just the world fell apart. (laughs) Vanessa, it's your turn to tell a story. Mm -hmm. What do you have for us? When I was 14 years old, a dream that I didn't quite know I had came true. And that was my friend Chelsea, whose father was a producer, decided that at the very last minute that he did not want to go to the Academy Awards that night. And so Chelsea called me and said, do you want to come to the Academy Awards with me? (laughs) The Oscars? (laughs) The Oscars, yeah. So I put on my best dress that I wore to bat mitzvahs, and I put on the only pair of heels I had. And my parents drove me in Monday night traffic downtown to the Shrine Center, which is where it used to be, and they picked up Chelsea, and it was, like, just the worst traffic ever because it was the Academy Awards. And they drove us, and we went, and we were on the second balcony, and I could barely see anything. And other than that, I just spent the whole night feeling really guilty about how much effort my parents put into driving us. And then they just, like, had to hang out downtown until we were done. And it was just sort of an unpleasant night. And obviously I would have regretted if I had said no and if I hadn't gone, right? This is like a dream come true thing. And I was so excited about this opportunity. And I really just spent the whole night feeling bad for my parents So I think it's interesting what we gear up to feel excited for. And then we're like, why was I excited for that? The whole school gets excited for the Triwizard Tournament. And I think it's so interesting because they seem to get excited about it before they really know what it is. And then, you know, we end the chapter with Harry, like, visualizing being a part of it and so excited about the possibility of being a part of it. And we know that it just ends up being, like, a stress monster for the year. Forget how it ends. But it ends up being this miserable experience for him. And so I'm just curious what it 
is in our lives that we're excited for, if we're excited for glory that ends up not being what it's worth and that we should sort of shift in our lives what it is that we're excited for, right? Like I should get more excited about being in the studio. It's so fun. But instead I get excited about these big deal things that often end up being about feeling guilty about having your mommy and daddy sit in traffic. I love that in a story about excitement and a story where you're going to the Oscars, you still manage to make it a depressing story. Here's the thing. I thought about times in my life where I was excited and then it was fun. But those aren't good stories. But they'd be happy. Sure. I was really excited to get my puppy and then I went and I picked up my puppy and she was so cute. Yeah, you're right. Right? It's just like, okay. And I say, you know what I'm excited for? I have no idea where this is going. Could it be the 30-second recap? Oh, my God. That was shocking. (laughs) Who's going first? Is it me? Yes, my love. Of course. I told the story. You go first. Oh, that's how it works. (laughs) On thou mark, get thy set, go. Um, Thy thy 30-second recap is starting now. Um, They arrive in the Great Hall, and Peeves is there, and he's got red water balloons, and he's throwing them at everyone. And I was like, what is that? Oh, my God, it's a water balloon. Which is, like, funny if it's summertime, but it's not funny now. And then they go into the Great Hall. Dumbledore announces tries a wizard tournament. Um, Moody arrives. And, you know, it's very exciting. Bobaton, Durmstrang, and uh, house elves live in Hogwarts. (laughs) You have three seconds left. I'm just chilling. (laughs) So basically what happens in this chapter is Peeves throws water balloons. I'm really about recentering marginalized figures in the text. (laughs) Here we go, Vanessa. 30 seconds. Three, two, one, go. It's raining. They arrive at Hogwarts. Peeves is throwing water balloons. They're all wet. They're pissed about it. Then they go into the sorting room. Harry hasn't seen sorting for a few years. Colin Creevy is like, hi, Harry. And Colin Creevy's little brother is like, I fell in the lake. They get sorted, which is very exciting. And then um, Hermione finds out that the food is made by slaves. Mad-Eye Moody arrives. Triwizard Tournament is going to happen this year, but no Quidditch. Boo. Harry goes to sleep thinking, I want to be a Triwizard. And that's how we do a 30-second recap. That was very good. Thank you. I very much appreciate you setting such a low bar. If I ever write a memoir, it's going to be called... Clearing the low bar. Clearing low bars. (laughs) Setting and clearing low bars. You know, this could be a really fun game. What is everyone in the text's memoir called? <laughs> like Not the Chosen One <laughs> by Neville Longbottom. Dennis Creevy's <laughs> Falling in the Lake and Other Adventures. <laughs> yes. Colin Creevy, My Life in Photos Before I Die in the Battle of Hogwarts. Yeah. <laughs> Still life. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Casper, one of the things that we love when it happens is when the theme word comes up in the chapter. And it happens pretty early in this chapter with one of our favorite characters, Colin Creevy. Oh, I love him. It says in the chapter, just then, a highly excited, breathless voice called down the table. Hiya, Harry. It was Colin Creevy, a third year. I think that this shows us like one version of what excitement is, which is just enthusiasm when you're presented with something fun. 
But I don't think necessarily Colin was like thinking about Harry all summer and was like, I can't wait until I see him. I mean, maybe. Because you could read it like just then a highly excited, breathless voice called down the table. Hi, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) Like it could be really creepy. It could. I mean, I think that Actually, that's an interesting dissection of excitement. There's the, hey, like, oh, I'm so happy to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. And the, like, just delight in running into someone excitement. And then there is the excitement of, like, having anticipated something all summer, seeing, you know, someone who you really admire as a celebrity. Well, this really reminds me of your story because... What struck me about your experience going to the Oscars was that kind of the timeline of excitement was too short. You know, you found out on the afternoon and then the event was in the evening and there wasn't really time to kind of imagine what it would be like and, you know, live yourself into the moment hundreds of different times in different ways. And so the excitement just didn't flower, didn't come into full bloom. And here is an example of maybe where it did, right? Colin is a third year now. So this is the third time that he's going to spend a year near Harry Potter. And that's very exciting. And every year he learns more things. And sometimes you get petrified. And that's all in just in the line of work of you know <laughs> being a Gryffindor. But he's got that time of excitement. I think that's paying off here because he's, you know, hi, Harry, exclamation mark. And this time it's going to be extra exciting because it's not just Colin. Now he gets to experience it with someone, his brother Dennis. Which I love that being an excited person seems to be a familial trait. Oh, my God. Dennis somehow falls out of the boat as it crosses the lake and magically, maybe by the giant squid, gets put back in the boat. And like, he is thrilled. This might have ruined someone else's first night at Hogwarts. Right. Can you imagine Ron falling in? Like, everything is awful. (laughs) But there's something admirable about it that like, no matter what happens, you're sort of excited for the adventure. And it almost seems like what Dennis is doing by being excited about this is that he's already aware of the fact that this is a story. And I wonder if the fact that their dad is a photographer and Colin is a photographer, if it leads you to sort of see things in the world as happening like a story and like, isn't it going to be a great story that I fell in the lake? Who cares? I'm going to be cold for an hour, but it's hilarious. My friend Caroline literally has a life motto that is story value over comfort. So whenever there's a situation where you're uncomfortable, like getting wet because you fell in the lake, exactly in that same way, you're like, this is going to be a great story. And what I especially respect about Colin here is that This is not his first time arriving at Hogwarts, but it is still such a thrill for him. When you compare that to Harry and Ron, who are like so over it because they're 14 and like they don't care anymore. From the opening pages of the chapter, there's, you know, language like this. The Great Hall looked its usual splendid self decorated for the start of term feast. And you're like, oh, yes, there's just floating candles everywhere. It's also usual. Like, it's not special anymore for him, and I don't think he allows it to be special. Which is deeply ironic, given that this is only the second time he's able to attend. (laughs) He's like, oh, my God, this again. I'm just hungry. And I'm like, this isn't business as usual. Mazel tov, you managed to arrive like a human being. Right. He even says things like, hope they hurry up with the sorting. I'm starving. I'm like, girl... You don't even know that the song is going to be different. Exactly. Like, you're so busy being a sullen brat about it that you're not even appreciating it. I will say that I guess to some extent I understand Harry's reticence about getting too excited. I think to some extent he might 
be very excited. But sometimes what I do when there's like a lot of pomp and circumstance to something is I behave as normally as possible so that the excitement can be genuine delight in things that happen and not expectations management. I love getting dressed up to go to the movies sometimes. I mean, like last night I got together with friends and we were in pajamas and like eating sushi and drinking champagne. It was a Tuesday night, but we were excited that we were together. But I feel like at weddings or something that are very high pressure, I try to behave in a like it's just any other Saturday way so that the genuine moments actually excite and delight me rather than walking around feeling disappointed about like, Oh, she stumbled over her words. Oh, she tripped. There's something fun about undercutting excitement. And Dumbledore does that a little bit in his speeches always, right? Like, it could be this moment for grandiose, big stories about Hogwarts and the values of this institution. And instead, he just says, tuck in, you know. So I I do get that. And at the same time, I think we have to kind of play along with the pomp and ceremony to make it something that we want to keep doing. I, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm someone who loves royal weddings and dressing up and tradition. And there's something impersonal about it, but that's exactly what makes it exciting because it's bigger than any single person. I think that, that's what I like about traditions or ceremonies is that it, it's something that kind of transcends time. And if things have been done a certain way for decades or centuries, yeah, it depersonalizes it and makes it part of something bigger. Which I agree with. But I feel like even you, you had a very formal church part of your wedding. And then for the dancing, it was like jeans and t-shirt contra dancing. Absolutely. And like bring your own pie, right? I I think it's about being all in on whatever it is. That's what I like. If it's informal, then dance the night away in jeans and t-shirts. Vanessa, I want to look at Dumbledore a little bit more closely in this chapter because, you know, we're learning about the Triwizard Tournament and everyone's getting very excited about it. Even though they don't really know what it is. Right. They're just like, change, excitement. Tournament. (laughs) Winner, champion. (laughs) But Dumbledore has these moments where he's kind of just like gazing off at the night sky, at the ceiling. Basically, what I think is happening here with Dumbledore is that he's always operating at two levels, right? Like he's physically present in this room, but we see him with his fingers touching one another, his chin resting on his fingers, and he's kind of deep in thought. And at one point, as he's explaining what the Triwizard Tournament is, he says to everyone else who might already know it, allow your minds to wander freely. And I was like, oh, this is how he lives all the time. Like he's in a staff meeting, he's working on some sort of algebraic wizarding equation. He is showing parents around the school and dealing with a board meeting. He's actually coming up with a new potion with phoenix feathers. Like, when you're that smart and that talented, I think you probably, you're in this world, but you're also in another world at the same time. And you're creating your own excitement because the everyday surroundings are just incredibly dull and obvious. That's so funny. I read it exactly opposite. That he is someone who has to operate on this high-functioning level where he's rushing off to the ministry and he's really dealing with high-stakes things a lot of the time. And so when he's in these situations, he seems to take genuine delight in them. He is smiling as he lists the things that Filch has forbidden this year. And when he sees Fred and George, like, play plotting to already break the age line, he, like, smiles at it. I actually feel like 
at least at moments in this, he's wise enough to delight in the, like, sheer humanity of it all. Filch is going to be forbidding things. Fred and George are going to be trying to break rules. Students are going to be talking over me. Some people aren't going to listen. And isn't it all beautiful? Oh, I definitely agree with that. And I think you can see his human wisdom in how short he keeps his speeches and how playful he is. But I do wonder that if you're someone who is at a skill level, you know, maybe you're training with people who aren't as good at you at jujitsu. I don't know. And you're not finding an equal sparring partner. You kind of have to create your own training program to go to the next level or you have to create your own challenges that will feel like they're worthy of you. And I guess that's what I feel like he's creating. You know, he's like, oh, let's figure out these horcruxes. Because <laughs> at this point, he already thinks Harry's a horcrux. <sighs> Do you think he created the Triwizard Tournament on purpose? Why would he do that? Walk me through your thoughts. Well, I'm just thinking bringing Bo Baton and Karkaroff and just after the Quidditch World Cup, is he trying to forge international alliances knowing that Voldemort is returning and that he needs allies in unexpected places? Oh, that I think, yes. I, I feel like he's always playing a couple steps ahead, you know? Yeah. Clearly, the arrangements were made before the Quidditch World Cup because there are all these rumblings at the Quidditch World Cup. But it does seem to be an active desire now that Voldemort seems to be on the rise again and Harry's in front of him. He's like, oh, we need diplomatic moves. Right. Yeah, and I think it's really beautiful, right, that out of fear, what he does is reach out to people rather than, like, build up an army. He's scared that something bad is about to happen, and he's not training the suits of armor to be ready to fight. What he's doing instead is reaching out to friends and, like, creating diplomatic alliances in case anything happens. And we see that it really works because Madame Maxime, at least, like, becomes a real ally to Hagrid and relationship building allows him to go on this recon mission later. Even without having a specific goal, just gathering people together is going to have positive impact. But I think that's what is so interesting is that there is a specific goal, right? There is the Triwizard Tournament because otherwise they wouldn't all have come. And so sometimes creating some sense of excitement or purpose, even if it is made up, it gives direction to the relationship in a way that makes people want to stay. I agree. I mean, like, I find board games very so boring. Fun. What? Oh, yeah. I find board games really tedious and boring. Like, board games play on words in my life. How are we friends? But the thing I like about board games is that they are an excuse to get people sitting at a table and they are something just distracting enough that if there's an awkward silence, you just like get into the game again. I still like playing. I still like the gathering and the like drinking of tea and the laughter. This is how Kakarov feels about the Triwizard Tournament. He's like, this is so boring, <laughs> but here we are and I get to have a sherry with Snape. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Vanessa, was there something else that struck you in this chapter? Yes. So there's something that I'm not sure how we're going to make it about excitement. But I have faith that we will. I think it is a very interesting moment when the students are talking to Nearly Headless Nick, and it turns out that there was this commotion in the kitchens with Peeves. And Nearly Headless Nick is like, well, all the house ghosts got together and decided that Peeves couldn't come to the feast tonight. And what I think is so interesting is that Nearly Headless Nick is like, thank God for the Bloody Baron. He was able to really, like, toe the line with Peeves. We're seeing that Gryffindor and Slytherin can get along if they have something in common. 
And I guess maybe the only thing I can think of is there could have been some real excitement about Slytherin and Gryffindor getting together to root for a Hogwarts champion. What a missed opportunity that is as a bonding thing, right? Like the ghosts get to bond over their hatred of Peeves and the fact that like Cedric and Harry both end up as champions creates this like divisive cheering thing. And so Slytherin and Gryffindor doesn't get to come together, which could have been a very exciting thing. That is really striking, the idea if there had been a single Hogwarts champion that we could have seen exactly the kind of unity that this whole project is supposed to be about within a school community. I mean, Peeves is so interesting. We've talked before how he's kind of institutionalized chaos by design. And you could say the same thing about creating excitement by having him externalized from the feast and therefore playing tricks elsewhere. And it's funny that you bring up the kind of inter-house animosity, because what really struck me was that at the sorting, when the first first year Slytherin is sorted, what happens is that the twins hiss at them when they walk past. And it was the first moment where I thought, oh, this inter-house animosity isn't just about Slytherin being nasty. This is also about Gryffindors being really cruel. And it's like Han Solo shoots first. I feel like that's what's happening here. It's like the twins are the first to hiss at a first year. Oh, absolutely. These types of rivalries make everybody ugly. And it's just really sad that That's how they're starting off this first year's career at Hogwarts is immediately with that nastiness. Vanessa, there's one final thing where I saw excitement, which I think is helpful, which is that, you know, at the very end, all the Gryffindors are going up to their bedrooms. When Ron looks at Dean's posters of the soccer players who are not moving in the images, Ron sighs to himself, mental (laughs) Like, he's just like, why would you be interested in this? Like, this is so boring. And it made me think that you have to have some level of understanding of something for something to be exciting, right? Like, he doesn't know the rules of soccer. And so those players aren't inspiring or interesting or fun to him. But if he did, like, these are amazing football players, soccer players. And so... You have to understand something in order for it to be exciting. I love that point. I think that that's exactly right. You can walk by a building a thousand times and like not read the plaque for it and be like, meh. And then you stop and read and you're like, what? I had no idea. That this was built by chickens. I can't (laughs) believe that they did that. There's a winged ball here. (laughs) Yeah, right? Things can be absolutely meaningless to you. And then if you look closely, they become so exciting. I mean, that's what fan and nerd culture is, right? It's looking at something more and more and finding it more and more exciting. Exactly. So, Casper, it's now time for our spiritual practice of the week, and we are going to do sacred imagination again. And I'm very excited, so I'm going to invite everybody to close their eyes and really try to imagine yourself into this scene as I read it aloud to you with my beautiful, cold-ridden Valley Girl voice. I have great pleasure in announcing that this year at Hogwarts— But at that moment, there was a deafening rumble of thunder, and the doors of the great hall banged open. A man stood in the doorway, leaning upon a long staff, shrouded in a black traveling coat. Every head in the great hall swiveled toward the stranger, suddenly brightly illuminated by a fork of lightning that flashed across the ceiling. 
He lowered his hood, shook out a long mane of grizzled, dark gray hair, then began to walk up towards the teacher's table. A dull clunk echoed through the hall on his every other step. He reached the end of the top table, turned right, and limped heavily towards Dumbledore. Another flash of lightning crossed the ceiling. Hermione gasped. The lightning had thrown the man's face into sharp relief, and it was a face unlike any Harry had ever seen. It looked as though it had been carved out of weathered wood by someone who only had the vaguest idea of what human faces are supposed to look like and was none too skilled with the chisel. Every inch of skin seemed to be scar. The mouth looked like a diagonal gash, and a large chunk of the nose was missing. But it was the man's eyes that made him frightening. So, Casper, what did you imagine in the scene? Where were you? Well, first of all, he's real scary. I've always imagined Moody in the way that the movies portrayed him. This reading showed him in a completely different way. Long gray hair and a black coat. That's very different from the imagery in the film. And the fact that all that we're really learning about is, of course, his the wooden leg he uses, but his face, the way that every inch of his face was scar. If it's just a gash, that's his mouth. His lips are gone, right? His eyes are terrifying. So different things happen for me. First... I was Dumbledore, and I was like, ugh, Moody, (laughs) always showing up as like a showman. And then I was Moody, and I was thinking about, I chose to enter at this point, and in such a conspicuous way, there would have been side doors to come through or the door near the teacher's table, for example. But I, I want to make some sort of statement to the students. So I'm thinking about how this whole scene is quite theatrical and set up in a way. But then as students looking at him and not knowing if this is a welcome visitor or not, it's not as if this is preordained that this is the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. So, yeah, I felt fear and a curiosity and I was scared. I was, like, intimidated. The other thing in being moody that I thought about is I'm excited throughout this book to really think about Barty Crouch and Moody. Yes. Because what is Barty Crouch Jr.'s goal in making an entrance like this? Right. I mean, he just wants to put himself at the center of things. Is it fun for him to be in someone else's body? He's been in prison for a long time, so maybe he desperately just, like, needs to be seen in the world. He's been invisible for so long, and even though it's not his body, it just feels good to be, like, embodied and have eyes on him. And have authority, the the freedom and the ability to make people fear me again, having been so humiliated. And to sort of humiliate this body of Mad-Eye Moody, who is a great enemy to me, right? Maybe Moody does skulk because he knows he's scary looking and knows that he might like frighten children and so wouldn't make this entrance. Instead, Barty Crouch could be humiliating him by making everybody look at how horrifying he is. So it could be sort of payback for this great horror. It's so interesting. I, I read it differently and we'll explore this more in the next chapter. But I think actually there's a 
level of respect between Crouch and Moody, much more so than the disdain that Crouch has to Voldemort's unfaithful followers who have abandoned him in hard times. Interesting. I think he sees Moody as an equal, even if on an opposing team, because he has the same depth of commitment to a goal, even if it's not the same one. Right. Worthy adversary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I really like that idea. But yeah, I mean, I know we'll never know what Barty Crouch Jr.'s motive is, but I definitely think that the way that Moody's body enters this room is impacted by the psychology of Barty Crouch Jr. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And the primacy of visibility, I think, is the central point that I'm taking away from this sacred reading. The other thing that I'm struck by in Hermione's point of view is Hermione is someone who puts so much emphasis on empathy. And she just must be so embarrassed to have gasped, or it must be so horrifying to have elicited that response from Hermione. Or actually, maybe it is her great empathy that forces her to gasp. Maybe it's not because Moody is scary looking, but because when you see a face like that, you can only imagine the pain that was involved in creating a face like that, right? So it's it's not like, oh my God, that's so ugly, but it's, oh my God, your life must be one of such pain. Mm. Which is what's already happened with her realization that there are house elves who have prepared all the food for her. So I, I feel like she's especially sensitive to other people's experience of pain in this moment already. Yeah. It's time for a voicemail. And this week it's from Charlotte Binks. Hi, Vanessa and Casper and Ariana. My name is Charlotte and I live in London. Um, I've just finished listening to your podcast on fandom and it made me think of a fandom that I've experienced where I've done not a complete 360 but have definitely changed my mind on. So growing up, almost to an obsessive point, I used to watch the TV show Friends. I would watch it every day when I came from home from school or work. I could recite every line. I had the DVDs. I had books on it. Um, I absolutely loved it. And I feel like Friends in particular has changed more recently in people's perceptions about what was funny and what maybe was an appropriate or funny joke in the 90s and early 2000s is less funny now. And actually, when I'm watching it now, some of the jokes actually make me feel very uncomfortable. And, you know, I'll still watch the show if it's on and I'll still find some bits funny, but there has definitely been some change that has happened. And so when I heard your episode on fandom, it made me think of this and how it was mirrored to how I feel about Friends and how Ron feels about Crum. He was obviously a big fan of Crum in this chapter. He's a little bit obsessed with him, thinks he's the bee's knees and that, and he looks up to him. It's like his idol. But as soon as Crum becomes Triwizard Champion and he is interested in Hermione, Ron does a complete 360. And it just made me think about how certain circumstances and different situations can make you see fandoms or something that you really love in a different way. And I kind of thought, if we had that perception in the first place, maybe we wouldn't have ever shown that fandom in the same way. And bye! Charlotte, thank you for your voicemail. I think that that's exactly right. And I think it's just okay to change your mind on things in general. Something I tell my students a lot is that it's okay to quit things. It just means that you tried something. And I think if you 
are changing your mind about something. It's just a sign that you're growing and evolving. And and also that like society is growing and evolving. It's so funny you talk about friends because I've had the same experience watching some of those older episodes, especially like gay jokes. Fat jokes. Fat jokes. And I still love Friends, but it's not a show that's staying through the ages in the way that Dinner Ladies is. <laughs> For our UK audience only. Or the series called Harry Potter. That's good too. It's, it's true. But even Harry Potter, right? I mean, something that we've discussed is like, it's so white-centric. It's so heteronormative. There's a boy at the middle of it. Even Harry Potter, I sometimes wonder if it's like woke enough for the next generation. But I think Harry Potter is so much more earnest. Like, it doesn't have the sarcasm and the self-consciousness. And there are no doubt problems in the text. But I think I think it is withstanding the test of time. I hope it does. I just think that our critical eye on it will grow as well. Casper, now we get to bless somebody. Who would you like to bless this week? I've got a double blessing. Ooh. Is, is that allowed? No, but go ahead. Okay. The first is for Dennis Creevy. I just feel like hashtag let's all live like Dennis. I want to meet every difficulty in my life with a double thumbs up being like, it was so exciting. (laughs) But also Hagrid's reaction is to give him his coat. And Hagrid needs his own coat because he's going to get wet. He's got more surface area to be kind of soaked through. But he gives his big coat to Dennis. And so Dennis arrives just enveloped by this enormous coat. And so he's still warm. And Hagrid, I don't know, I just love Hagrid so much. This blessing is for anyone who meets life head on with two thumbs up and for anyone who gives shelter or warmth to someone who's fallen into a lake. Because I would be annoyed. I'd be like, what'd you do to fall in? Suffer. Learn. How about you, Vanessa? I would like to bless Hermione for her reaction to the news that there are house elves at Hogwarts. I think that often when you find out something disturbing about something you love, you very quickly want to justify it of like, well, at least the house elves probably get treated well here. And that her reaction is to assess immediately how dire the situation is of like, well, do they at least get vacation days? Like she is looking to justify it, but with data. And as soon as the data doesn't satisfy her, she pushes her plate away. Mm. And I know she's going to start eating again in the next chapter, but that initial reaction of just disgust of like, well, I can't eat this food. It was made by slaves. I think is something that we could all use more in our lives of just getting information and even before we've processed it, having a strong reaction of action, not just lip service. Is something that I really admire about Hermione. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes, or send us a voicemail at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll read Chapter 13, Mad-Eye Moody, through the theme of judgment. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Casper Terkyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. We would like to offer a big thanks to Charlotte Binks for sending in this week's voicemail, to Harshi Hedegay, to Rebecca and Charlie Ludley, and to Stephanie Paulsell. We'll see you all next week.
And so weird that they're like, the goblet said. Like, so, no. no. What's the goblet going to do? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> Start making water instead of wine? Like, what is, what's the risk here? So weird. I guess the goblet said. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, Dumbledore, be a bit more present. <laughs> yeah. So. It's like, oh, this will be fun. <laughs>